Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by The Memo, the weekly I Choose the Ladder newsletter that goes out every Monday to help you with your career development during the week. In the newsletter, I share articles that I found helpful as a Black woman in corporate America, career development resources, job opportunities, and upcoming I Choose the Ladder events. Everything we do is released to the subscribers of the newsletter first. If the memo sounds like something you'd like to receive, you can subscribe by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. Again, that's CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. In this episode, you meet Kimberly A. Cook, a partner at Schiller, Ducanto, and Fleck, where she is the embodiment of grace under pressure. As demonstrated by her distinguished legal career as an esteemed litigator known for guiding her clients through difficult and complex family law matters, including prenuptial agreements, divorce, custody and child support with grace and dignity. Disintegrating relationships are never easy. That's why Kimberly works one-on-one with her clients to help them realize their own power to navigate to the next stage of their lives. She brings a personalized approach to every case and works diligently with her clients to develop a clear plan for everything from prenuptial agreements to post-judgment issues. As a skilled litigator, Kimberly is always prepared to go to court if negotiation is not possible while demonstrating that kindness should never be mistaken as weakness. Kimberly navigates clients through a difficult time while giving them the tools to move forward into their best life. Kimberly's legal work speaks for itself. She has been named a rising star by Super Lawyers Magazine since 2013. She was identified as a 40 under 40 Illinois lawyer to watch, listed in Crane's Chicago Notable Minority Lawyers, and named in the Best Lawyers in America 2015 to 2017. Kimberly received her BA from Spelman College and her JD from the Catholic University of America, Columbus School of Law. While in law school, she served as a judicial intern for the Honorable Gerald B. Lee, U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia, and the Honorable John Mott, Superior Court of the District of Columbia Domestic Relations Division. Kimberly spends her free time sharing her legal experience with the community as a speaker, volunteer, and mentor. She's a member of the Black Women's Lawyers Association and American Bar. Her civic engagement includes her membership in Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, Jack and Jill of America Incorporated, and the Economic Club of Chicago. Now, Kimberly is phenomenal. I had such a good time talking to her. We talk about things like the first time that she had to show up at work with braids, and we know that law can be a very conservative space to be in. We talk about how she's become numb to certain criticisms and and feedback, and how she deals with, you know, communicating with people in tense times, um, but still being able to advocate for her clients without letting the stereotypes that typically um, get associated with Black women stop her from being able to do the best for her clients. She also gives tips on how um, you can live your life so that you don't become one of her clients. So as always, grab your favorite notebook and pen and your drink of choice. Uh, Tonight, I'm having tea uh, because this weather is just, it's doing a lot to my immune system. But Grab your favorite beverage and get ready to catch these gems. Hi, Kimberly. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me today. I'm so excited. And I know we've been trying to make this happen for some time, so I'm glad that our schedules finally worked and we can do this. And y'all, before I get started, 
So Kimberly is the first black partner in her firm. Her firm has been around for what, 35 years? Something like that? 35 years. That's right. And of all the largest divorce uh, firms in Chicago, you're the only black woman partner. Is that true? That is true. And, you know, just to add depth to that, my firm is the largest divorce firm in the country. So, you know, we're not just talking about Chicago. We're talking about nationwide. Uh, My firm, we have about 50 lawyers. All we do is is divorce and family law. So we are the largest divorce firm in the country. And there's me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess so then my first question, like, we'll, we'll talk about how you decided that you, of all the practices to be a, a lawyer in, that you decided that divorce was your ministry. So we'll get to that. But in terms of um, law, like how did you know that you wanted to be in this corporate space? Were your parents' attorneys? Is it something that like you were kind of raised to think about as a career option? How did that happen for you? So no, my parents are not um, attorneys and certainly the furthest thing from, you know, my parents were uh, educators and, um, It really just kind of happened. So, you know, in high school, I took uh, kind of what I would call at the time, like the pre-law type classes. Um, Looking back, they really are more like government policy, Mm. um, you know, type classes. And so then I went to college. I was an English major and um, a philosophy minor. And really just, I think, have always just really been comfortable in this space of kind of speaking up, speaking out, and in exploring um, things that I enjoy and what I saw myself doing as a career, it seemed to kind of trend towards the law. Mm -hmm. Um, But then under the umbrella of, you know, what type of law, that didn't come until much later. But certainly I think I've always kind of in this space of knowing that um, you know, being able to kind of give voice to other people, speaking up, um, and then just kind of being a very type A rule follower, I think it just kind of made sense that that this would be kind of where I landed. So since your parents weren't attorneys, right, you didn't really have the, like, that network to lean on of potential people, how did you go around navigating that, like, transitional period between, you know, getting into law school and then finding that first internship or that job? Did you have mentors to help you figure that out? So not at all. So, you know, and I'll add, you know, an even additional layer to that. So... Um, I grew up in the Republic of Panama because of my parents' jobs. So, you know, I had kind of the jump of leaving Panama and then going to college in Atlanta. So I went to Spelman in Atlanta. And I think it was really then, um, as I've said, you know, that kind of formulated this thought of, I think maybe after school, I will go to law school. Um, And kind of connected, I would say, with other friends who were interested in, in law school their parents who were lawyers. Um, And then after college though, I didn't go straight to law school. I actually taught for two years and kind of told myself at the end of that time period, if I still was very interested, then I would proceed. And it was during that time period that I think I really just started to connect with lawyers. I um, was a, a nanny for a black woman who was a lawyer Mm-hmm. And um, I think that really kind of shaped my 
kind of formation, not just in law school, but once I became in the practice as a black woman in the firm space, just by virtue of the fact of seeing her and her experiences. And you did, so you're a double HBU or IC. So you Spelman for undergrad and Howard for law, or where did you go to law? No, so um, I, Spelman undergrad, I went to the Catholic University of America for law school. I'm married, though, to a Hustle alum, a Howard alum. Yes. Okay, got it. So, yes. And then thinking through your um, decision of where you went to law school, how did you, because I know there are a few listeners who are thinking about, you know, potentially making a career switch at this point because of everything that's going on in the world and like feeling like they want to give people voices who don't have them. What did you think about or what did you factor in as you picked your law school? So, you know, being very honest, the number one factor was cost. Mm. Right. So, um, you know, I graduated college, worked for a couple of years, and I knew that, um, you know, my parents had put me through college. I'm one of three. And, you know, they kind of were like, look, we completely support um, all of our children doing things beyond undergrad. But if it's something that you really want to do, you're going to fund it. And so, that was a huge factor for me. Um, but I also wanted to go, I think to a place where, um, it was a smaller school. There are a number of law schools that kind of have really big class sizes. That was important to me. And I will say that, you know, there's a big difference between undergrad and law school. Um, you know, and that's probably true for all graduate programs. You actually have to really want to be there. Right. And, um, it's, it's a, it's a different feel. And so I knew DC was of interest. I spent a lot of time growing up in DC. So I was looking at schools in DC. Um, and then, you know, the cost component as well as class sizes, and then I'm Catholic. And so those kinds of things all kind of together ended up, you know, to where, to where I ended up at the Catholic University of America for law school. Got it. And you, um, you were not an associate at the firm that you currently work for, correct? Did I remember that properly? So I didn't start out. So I, when I graduated from law school, I started with a firm. I was an associate with a firm in, in D.C. Okay. And then um, moved to Chicago about two years into to practicing. And I did start with Schiller, my current firm, as an associate and then worked my way through to become a partner. That's right. What made you decide to switch firms, right? Because I think a lot of times people are saying, you know, are thinking about when is it the right time to switch careers, to switch companies, to switch different things or pivot. So what what factored into that decision of like, okay, maybe it's location because you were moving, but why did you feel like you wanted to make that change? So there were a couple of things going on at the same time. So my firm in D.C., was really kind of at the time when I started, there were about 12 lawyers and in a you know very short span, um, a, a number of lawyers were leaving to kind of go out on their own or do other things. Around the same time, my boyfriend, now husband, had relocated here to Chicago. And so we were talking a lot about, you know, whether or not I was going to relocate. Um, and, you know, the thing with law school or being a lawyer, you know, once you're licensed, so you take the bar in one place, um, you know, you really try to stay in that area so you don't have to take another bar exam. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing that where kind of my relationship was headed, it really made sense for me to say, okay, I've been in DC now for two years. 
if I'm going to go ahead and consider moving, now is the time to do it. I can take the Illinois bar and go. Because the concern for me, at least, was, you know, if I, if I practice or stay in the practice for, you know, upwards of five years in one state and then have to try to relearn and go back and take a new bar exam, to me, that's felt very daunting. It can, it's doable, but I felt like the information seemed to be fresh enough in my head that I, I could take a bar exam and then go ahead and move. So that was a real kind of a driving force. But when I was transitioning from DC to Chicago, um, you know, I basically was told that no firm in the city would hire me. They don't know me. Um, this is a very closed off practice area. It's kind of a who's who good old boys type mentality, at least at the level by which I'm practicing. And so, um, I, you know, basically had to do my own kind of outreach networking because there wasn't anybody one that I could look to, to kind of directly connect, Mm -hmm. but two, Um, you know, for those individuals who had kind of the experience of moving and trying to quote infiltrate, um, you know, the divorce practice area here in Chicago, you know, essentially said, yeah, no, it's just not going to happen. Um, how did you not let that discourage you though? Right. Because eventually you were able to find a job. Um, and so for all the people out there, this is the moment to listen in because I know you have naysayers everywhere. You have people who don't necessarily have the same vision that you have and we allow them to discourage us from doing what we know that we should do. So for you, how did you not let that stop you or scare you from making the move? You know, I I think it's all about resilience. And I think you have to just say to yourself, look, I can do this because if if not me, then who? And so for me, it was really more about Stop telling me that no, you know, no one's going to hire me. I am very good at what I do. I'm young. I'm hungry. And, you know, why shouldn't they? But the other thing is this. I think a lot of times we're afraid of even trying. And so we let other people kind of tell us what won't happen. So if I had just kind of left it at the individuals who said nobody will ever hire me, then I, I would have never known. So for me, it was, okay, that sounds great. Let me just see anyway, right? So I think for me, but that's always kind of how I've been, is I hear what you're saying, but I might as well try. And so, I, you know, when I was interviewing or, or reaching out to individuals, you know, I would be lying if I didn't say I, you know, didn't get discouraged because I would, you know, either not get responses from firms or I would get, you know, no, we're not hiring. Or I wouldn't, you know, kind of get the introduction or the information that I had been asking for. But I just kind of kept going and going. Um, because, I, you know, I just kind of had this sense of, you know, why not? And, and if nothing else, if nothing else, and I think this is why education is so important. You know, my parents would always say, if nothing else, you can always find a job because you have a degree. Mm. You, you, you're not going to not find a job. It may not be the job you want initially, but if they keep saying no, that's fine. Cause you will, you, you can practice law, mm-hmm. maybe just not at the firm that you want. So I think for me, that was kind of my fallback of if every firm in the city says, no, I can always open my own firm and 
so be it. Yeah. And so looking back on that time now, um, I think it's like almost 12 or 13 years ago, what do you think is the difference between why you were able to find success and so many others were not in trying to secure that position? Well, there, there was two things. I think timing was everything. Um, you know, um, keep in mind 13 years ago, Google wasn't what it is today. Internet wasn't what it is today. And so, um, when you think about, I was making like direct phone calls, right? So picking up the phone and trying to get on the phone with anybody and everybody's secretary. And the reason I say secretary is because a lot of times people try to skip over and get right to the individual. And, you know, the kind of quote corporate secret is a lot of times the secretaries are the gatekeepers. And I, it's so important to kind of formulate if you can a relationship with the secretary or the staff person. And so, you know, I remember just up early calling, calling and, and circling back, want to follow up. And finally, um, you know, it, it was almost like a connect the dots for me. So I think that for those individuals, those women who are really looking about, you know, this is where I want to move, formulate a plan, and then just stick to that plan, no matter how long it it, it takes. It's not going to be an overnight thing. I mean, you know, um, I knew I wanted to move to Chicago in January of 2008. And so I started kind of on this journey I would probably say in like the spring of 2007. Mm. So I didn't, it wasn't like, you know, an overnight, it was, let me try to research the firms that I, I would be interested in and let me talk to my own network and see who may know anybody from Chicago. I went to college with a lot of people from Chicago and I reached out to a lot of, you know, just friends saying, here are the firms I'm looking at. Do you happen to know anybody? And, and then just from there, tried to connect dots to get to where I could get in the door. And how long was it between when you started looking and when you actually secured the job? Do you remember? So started looking in the spring and got an offer from um, Schiller in, I want to say, November of 2007. So, you know, five, six months. Mm. Um, and then I moved in December and I started with the firm in January of 2008. That, that's amazing. And so you mentioned right now um, about how you were able to lean on your network. Um, now you have a job. How have you been intentional about cultivating and growing your network so that if there's a time you need to lean on them, that those relationships already exist? You know, I think... Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a ongoing thing and we have different networks, um, but it's, it's not a a one and done. So, um, the one thing I will say though, is oftentimes we overlook some of our, what I'll call the friends and family network. Mm -hmm. Um, and my friends and family network are really how I got to where I am today because as I said, I'm not, I wasn't from Chicago. And so I needed to rely on friends who were from this area to even kind of help me point in one direction. Now that I'm here, I've been here. Of course, I have, you know, my legal network, 
that I can rely on when we're, when I'm looking for, you know, other kind of law related issues. Um, but I also then have kind of my community and larger network when I'm looking for mentors or when I'm looking for other kinds of supports. Um, and I think that in cultivating and recognizing that you have different networks and how you engage in those, I think that's really important. And it's something that I've tried to do. What are some like tangible things that you've done to add more people to your network? Is it events? Is it meetups or just like one or two things that you've done? Yeah. So, um, you know, I do meetups. I like under COVID right now, it's been a little bit harder, but I'll say Zoom type, you know, connections have been great. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like more intimate um, connections because at very early on in my career, I um, kind of fell into this notion that, you know, networking meant going to, say, for example, the very large bar association events. And I would go, and for lack of a better phrase, it was like a cattle call. Mm-hmm. And, and I would walk away, and I'm like, I didn't really meet anybody, or I didn't feel like I made an authentic connection. So mm-hmm. I think that for me, um, having one-on-one or very small, intimate type of whether it's, you know, let's do a lunch or let's do a coffee. I actually like doing kind of get-togethers at breakfast. Um, those, to me, are more meaningful, so I do those. But I'm also, I I think you also have to rely on things that are strengths for you. So for example, I'm a big fan of note cards and greeting cards. And so for me, I kind of connect with and keep my hands kind of with my network with like sending out handwritten note cards or, you know, a birthday card or, and so those things I think have been kind of my calling card and people have, you know, come back to me saying, oh my gosh, I got this, you know, Mother's Day card from my divorce attorney or a friend of mine told me about the, you know, Mother's Day card that she got from you. And it was so touching, but it's an authentic thing because that's, that's who I am. And so I think you have to kind of figure out when you're looking into networking, what works for you. Mm-hmm. and and then really work that. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned COVID and uh, research has shown that even when we're in the office physically present with our coworkers and like higher ups, it's really hard for black women to find mentorships, to find sponsors within organizations. And so now that we're with COVID and you're not, you know, they're not top of mind, maybe some of their managers or the people who are above them, um, I think it's going to be even harder. So do you have any thoughts or recommendations on what they can do to actually try to connect and stay top of mind um, so that they can get the support that they need? Sure. You know, because as I, you know, shared with you, you know, I'm the only black lawyer and, and was at the, was the only black lawyer at my firm for a very long time. And then, um, and now partner, I had to, search within the firm for people who were going to be supports who clearly were not African-American, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, yes, the top of mind when you're in the office and kind of going in and connecting and having those day-to-day connections is great. But for my mentors who were not in, my, in the office, um, you know, I had to come up with ways to also kind of stay kind of top of mind. And so I did a lot of like 
email. I did a lot of, you know, picking up the phone. And I think now it's the same thing. So, you know, because you're not necessarily in the office space, you should, I think, still utilize tools like, you know, um, Zoom or video conferencing, picking up the phone, calling, sending an email, because, you know, we are all inundated all the time with just so much information and so much going on that I think just consistency is key. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's important that, especially when you're working with a mentor or or, um, trying to establish the relationship, that it's a, it's a, two-way street, right? So, so when I'm reaching out to someone who has been mentoring me, I'm not just coming to them always asking for like, Hey, can you help me with an issue? Right. It's really also too a lot of times a touch base on, Hey, just wanted to share with you that I have been invited on this wonderful podcast. I'm really excited. And, you know, here are my thoughts about what I think I'm going to do. What do you think? Or, Maybe I don't even add the what do you think. So I think it's important when you're having these relationships to always remember that, you know, you've got to kind of do a little bit of your own work too in, in managing that relationship. How can you tell if someone's the right mentor for you, right? There are tons of people who are trying to find their very first mentor and they, they don't know anybody necessarily. They don't even know what the criteria should be or what makes a good mentor. So as you're thinking, like, how have you, of all the people in your firm, how did you know which ones were the right ones to mentor you? You know, it's truly a work in progress because I I will tell you the people that you think are the right fit for you. (laughs) Oftentimes, at least my experience of it, that they aren't actually the right fit. But I also, I also have learned that mentors can come by surprise. And so I think, you know, one of my greatest mentors, um, I wasn't even kind of looking for, for a mentor, right? But by virtue of the fact that she and I started to work on cases together and work together on a lot of things, um, and I valued how she practiced and I liked some of the approaches that she would take, but I also liked her ability to explain things to me. And so that relationship really just kind of formed because we were working together. So I think it's important. Don't always kind of cast aside those relationships that are formulated by virtue of just working together because you're seeking out a a mentor. Mm -hmm. That said, when you are, I think, looking for a mentor, I think it's important to write down what you're looking for in a mentor because you have to know what you're what you're looking for, right? So if you're looking for somebody to help, you know, you get a promotion, or if you're looking for greater exposure, if you're looking to learn things, then I think you jot down here are the things that I'm looking for. And then start looking within your organization or your greater network at people who are doing those things. And they don't necessarily have to be the CEO, right? They could they can very well be, you know, someone who is a year or two kind of ahead of you um, and, and, and have that kind of formulation. But you do need to at least jot down, here are the kinds of things I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. But also be mindful that not everybody has the capacity to be a good mentor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't, you know, don't take it personally. I think if someone 
you know, doesn't end up being what you thought they would be because some people, you know, have good intentions, but they, it's just not, it, it, it just not who they are. Yeah, it's true. And it's not, you don't have to have one mentor be your end all be all. Like it's okay to have multiple, but just like practice with the first actually getting a relationship that is been mutually beneficial. And then you can expand kind of that board of directors that you have. I think is absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, that's so key. You know, don't feel like you, you know, it's just one individual and you know, it's a make or break thing, try it out, see what works, but always kind of be looking because again, you have, you know, different mentors to guide you in, in different ways. And as with anything, some mentor-mentee relationships run its course depending on how you're growing and developing. And it's okay to have had, you know, a mentor in the early stages and then, you know, you kind of transition to, to other people. That, that's, you know, that's common and, and it, it helps with your own growth. Hmm. Um, and I'm going to say, pivoting a little bit, I'm super surprised that you have your hair braided, right? Because you work in such like, like law is very conservative, right? And so to be the only black lawyer, and one of the things that we know that all black women talk about is hair. And I mean, I guess white people talk about it too, but like black hair. Um, So do you think about um, what your hair looks like? Do you pay a lot of attention to that? Do you worry when you get braids that someone's going to say something crazy to you? Like, how do you, how do you, (laughs) what your, because I'm pretty sure that most of your clients are not black people and so to show up with your poetic justice braids like that you know can be a little shocking for them so do you think about do you put a lot of thought into what your hair looks like okay so I okay so let me tell you about this because that is I told you I started with the firm in 2008 okay and I've always been very conservative with my hair and and by conservative meaning it was not natural style Okay. Um, and that was intentional because it was already, at least for me, feeling like, you know, I already kind of stick out here anyway. I don't need any other issues, drama, attention. Fast forward, and here I am now, you know, years later, a partner with the firm and still, you know, very conservative. And by conservative, I will tell you that most of the time my hair was back in a bun. I just, it was, you know, um, easier for me and it just appeared more professional. And so that's really how I wore my hair a lot of the time. Well, about, I guess it's been about two summers ago, um, my husband and I were going to go to Greece um, for about 10 days. And there was no way that I was going to go on a 10 day vacation and have to deal with my hair. I mean, you're a black woman. You know, it, it, it just, on vacation, it adds just a level of... It's too much. That I just don't want, right? It's too much. It's too much. I want it. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, so here's what I'm going to do. We were supposed to leave like on a Saturday. And I had a, an appointment to get my hair braided on that Friday. So we could get on the plane Saturday. We were going to be gone. And then I purposely was going to have my hair, get my hair taken down and, you know, done before I was supposed to be back in the office. I had this all planned and timed and whatever. So lo and behold, I was supposed to go on Friday and I got a text from the braid shop and said, hey, sorry, 
you know, something's happening. We can't get you in on Friday, but we can get you in on Thursday. So, uh, uh, okay, fine. I just won't go into the office on Friday. So I get my hair braided on Thursday. And as I'm at the braid shop, I get an email from my office that my, that one of my clients, um, there is an emergency matter and I have to appear on Friday. I was not at all concerned about the emergency matter. I was concerned because here I was two thirds of the way done with getting my hair braided. And now I have to go into the office on Friday, Friday morning. I am panicked. And keep in mind, I have now been at this firm for a good 10, 11 years. I am known, you know, with judges. I am, and I am panicked about my hair. And so, as anybody who knows who's recently gotten your hair braided, I couldn't pull it back, right? It was too tight to, like, you know, like, be trying to, like, so I had no choice but to just wear it down. I couldn't. So I get off the elevator and I try to make a beeline to my office and my office is two doors down from, he's no longer the managing partner, but at the time he's a managing partner. And as I'm trying to get to my office, he calls me into his office and I'm thinking, well, here we go. And so I get into his office. He was asking me about a case. And when we finish, he says, you did something different with your hair and my neck stiffens because I'm thinking, okay, I've been here. I'm a partner at this firm. And if we are going to have this issue, I'm going to really have to make some decisions about whether or not I can stay at this firm. I mean, this is all going in my head in this like 2.5 seconds. And he says, I really like it. But then his face turns red. Cause then he says, Oh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, you know, with all the Me Too movement, and I don't mean anything by it. And I said to him, I said, oh, no, it's fine. I appreciate you saying that. Um, You know, thank you very much. We went on about our business, and I went to my office, and I have not worn my hair back in a bun since that day. (laughs) It was... It was the moment by which, you know, and again, here he was, the managing partner. He's an older Jewish uh, man. And for me, mentally, it was kind of this stamp of approval, right? Which is so sad to say, um, but it was kind of that stamp of approval. And I will tell you that the minute I kind of got that stamp, it was one confirmation that I was, I'm at the right firm for me, but two, that I can be who I am, um, and still do a very good job. So now if you go to, you know, my website, you will see a black woman in all her braid glory as her headshot. You know? <laughs> and I think that like, it's so a couple of weeks ago, I'm actually going to do an infographic on this. We, I asked black women to share things that they go through that they don't think that their non-black counterparts go through. Like a white woman would not understand the love, like, cause I was at the anxiety when you told me that like your braid appointment got moved. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, like what, what are you, and then you right? Like, cause I can relate to those moments of being like, 
I just, I don't want to be bothered with this. Like, I just don't, yeah. it's just another thing that I don't want to think about. Um, and then having you have to go in and being like, oh, I hope nobody notices. I hope, knowing that everybody's going to notice and the fact, of course. And it's like, you did something different. I just don't know what it is. It's like, I have a whole three feet of hair on my head. Yes. Like, what do you, right? But those are very uniquely black girl experiences. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, but you know, I mean, the, the, my husband could see the terror in my face and he kept saying, it's going to be fine. And I, I remember kind of saying to him, I might not be employed when I come back today. I mean, because I just didn't know how this could go. Right. Uh-huh. Like, and you're right. It's a uniquely black experience in having that moment of from even scheduling an appointment that is around so I don't have to be in the office and doing that dance. But I, you know, I, I, I look back and I said, you know what, but God, because it was time, it was time. Yeah. And, you know, having that all kind of happen, having, you know, again, this managing partner who, by the way, is very rarely uh, in the office on Fridays anyway. And, and so it was kind of, you know, this, this kind of unique set of circumstances, but I would agree with you, not any of my, you know, white colleagues would ever have that kind of, you know, experience. Um, and, and that is part and parcel to the black experience. I think, you know, certainly in corporate America, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's the same way I feel like when, you know, I have to temper, you know, my reaction to things, um, because, you know, I have to do this balance of, you know, being upset or assertive and coming off as the angry black woman. And, you know, whereas some of my, you know, white, where the male or female colleagues, they can scream and shout and yell till they're purple in the face and they're passionate, and they're passionate right? And, and they're, um, you know... Just, uh, they just need a second. When I do it, or if I get to that level, you know, I've had the situation where I've had a opposing counsel or a judge say something like, oh, because you don't want to get Miss Cook upset. And I'm thinking, well, actually you don't. However, there, there's, there are racial undertones with that. And so I have to be mindful in that space of, I don't need this to become a distraction. And that is what it will become. And that lessens, you know, the, the job that I'm doing here today. And, and, and so I, I, that's, that is an, an experience of being Black in corporate America that people don't understand unless you've been in that space. And how do you think having to do that impacts you? Having to do you that? You know, the sad part about that question is I think I've been doing it so long that I'm almost numb to it mm. um I think that there are certain things you know there's been a lot going on in the world and um and a lot of attention let's say this I'm not going to say a lot going on I'm going to say there's a lot been a lot of attention in the last two weeks about racial issues and um and what I will say is this isn't something that's new for us this is I you know I will be 41 this this month, this is a 41 year, you know, kind of life learned, lesson learned. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And, you know, I can remember from young having the experience of, you know, my cheerleading coach who was white, nice. And I would say something, I was a team captain and she would say, you know, it's not what you said, but it's how you said it. And I would think, well, I said it the same way as everybody else did. Why does it seem to be a different issue? And that has been kind of a swan song in my head for years Mm. that I'm constantly like, well, how did I say it? Mm. How was it received by this individual? And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, I've just kind of become numb to it of the, you know, let me not scare somebody if I raise my voice. Mm. And then I think one of the, the other things is you are, um, you're at the table alone right now, right? In terms of people like you, right? So a lot of times when things are uncomfortable, at least like I can find one other Black girl to be like, hey girl, <laughs> can we talk? Right now, like you, for and for a while, like you've been at this by yourself. So one, do you ever get imposter syndrome being in such a highly visible role and being the only one and not, like you are the blueprint for others to follow. You don't really have that right now or even in your industry. So do you ever get imposter syndrome? And if you do, how do you handle it? Oh, you know, Yes. I, you know, I will tell you that the day that I have, you know, um, someone sitting across the table from me in, you know, whether it's in my firm or opposing counsel that I can kind of, we just kind of talk without speaking, but give each other a look. Cause we, we both know, I'm telling you, that's going to be a day where, you know, it will be a lot of happiness in my life. Um, you know, I think I have for so long just kind of adapted and and adjusted. And, um, a lot of times though, what I do, because I have a great support system and girlfriends and family and what, and so, you know, it is not uncommon for me when I'm having a day or having a moment in the middle of the day to go in my office and close the door and pick up the phone and call one of my girlfriends and just unleash on the phone because I need that moment. I need that release. Right. And, and I, um, and then hang up the phone and kind of, you know, put my girl, you know, big girl panties back on or whatever you want to call it and say, okay, let me just go about with my, with my day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's tough and I, you know, it's lonely. It, it's lonely. Um, you know, and, and, uh, I have though, uh, in Cook County, we have a number of black judges who I now, have, you know, appeared in front of several times and I had been in pre-trial conferences with, with judges and, whether or not they agree kind of with my ruling, the fact that they are there and they see me, they hear me, um, it, it, it makes all the difference. And so, you know, having at least that has been great. But I, I you know, I will also tell you, though, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I went to Spelman and, you know, I could go on and on and on about my love for Spelman, but the one thing that I always kind of rely on when I'm in these moments is that, you know, those four years taught me how to be the best at whatever I'm doing, regardless of 
you know, who else is in the room, what else anybody looks like, because it was the, the one time for four years where, you know, everybody in the room looks like you and everybody, you know, and that means, you know, female, you know, black, um, and may have had some similar type of experience growing up as in being the only black girl on the cheer team or the only the first prom queen or whatever it is and so those four years I think really allowed me to push myself in a way that reminded me that look I'm good regardless of you know black white female male and keep telling yourself that even when you are the only in that room. Mm. Um, and we, I guess we can, we'll circle kind of back to this, but so you chose to be a divorce attorney, right? So I'm assuming that right now your life is real with COVID and all, because I've been seeing the numbers that some couples just are not quite making it. So <laughs> how, how, first question is how has COVID changed your job or changed the way you work? And two, what are some things that Black women can do to make sure that they do not become your client? Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I fell into divorce, but we'll, we'll circle back. But Wait, no, no. Yeah. how did you fall into divorce? How does someone fall into being a divorce attorney? Kimberly? What? <laughs> so I told you I went to the Catholic University of America. So we right, are not- like, they don't even believe in divorce. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Listen, I, I keep a challenge going. You know, you know what? In my um, in my first year of law school, at the end of the first year of law school, I was very fortunate to enter to intern with a judge who was um, a federal judge, a black man, and he was, I would say, you know, one of really my first mentors in the law space. And he uh, was married to this amazing black woman who was a divorce attorney, and. Uh, one day he and I were talking about what I was interested in. And I said to him, I'm not really sure. And he said, go put down, just write down what you like, what you don't like, what your interests are. And let's kind of talk. And so we came back, he kind of looked over my list and he said, I think you would be really good at divorce. And I was like, I don't know anything about divorce. My parents have been married for, you know, at that time, 30 something years or now 40 plus years. Um, and it's not my space. And he said, go try it out. Go intern, you know, at this firm and see if it were, if you like it. And I started with the firm uh, in DC and I just loved it. I, I loved it because I was helping people transition out of a very difficult situation to really move forward in their lives. And, and, and that's why I started it. That's why I continue to do it. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about COVID, um, you know, it's a really interesting thing because we're all in the house together. And for a long time, we've all been kind of in the house together for a long time. Um, and that has really brought out some unique experiences for couples that they didn't, they didn't highlight or, or didn't have, um, kind of the the attention or the ability to focus on because we are so busy doing other things Mm -hmm. so this kind of forced people to slow down and and focus on their relationship and um 
So what I'm getting now that we're kind of moving into, you know, here in Chicago, we're now moving into kind of this phase three. What I'm getting now really are a lot of people kind of reaching out, asking questions and, and, and asking questions that, frankly, they've probably been asking themselves for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so while I know kind of the outer numbers and people are like, oh, the divorce, it's going to be on the rise right now. We're in the, we're all kind of poking our head up out of the hole, right? We haven't kind of come out yet, but we're kind of taking a, I should have been looking into stuff a long time ago. COVID has zeroed in on some focus. Now I've got questions. Mm. So to the, you know, person, to the black woman who is saying, all right, you know, how do I not end up? in, in Kimberly's office. Um, I I would say that starts well before you start dating. You, You have to be very, very, very mindful of your own risk tolerance and your own intentions in a relationship. And so I, I say that because when we are dating, A lot of times we accept things that we shouldn't because we just want to be in a relationship or we allow things to fester or ignore them for whatever reason. And what happens is we start dating somebody and then we continue dating and then we look up and we're engaged and those same issues didn't change but we have just continued to allow them. So for example, you're dating somebody and you know, I'm a saver and that person is a spender. Have real conversations about money and finances. Don't wait until we're now married and you know, you can't buy a house because every 10 minutes they're out, you know, dropping money just to spend money and you're trying to save. See what it's like when things aren't great. So pay attention to how your um, girlfriend or your boyfriend reacts when you guys fight. Do they, quote, play dirty? Are they always trying to undermine you? Those things don't change. If you have, you know, listen to your instincts. And I, I tell this to people all the time when they come into my office and they say to me, you know, Even before we got married, I was just, you know, so uncomfortable with how, you know, he handled his finances, right? And I say point blank, okay, then what made it okay when you got married? Mm. You have to ask yourself those questions. I also think that it's really important that we educate ourselves about a prenuptial agreement. I know that there's a real concerns about what that means and, you know, uh, is that signifying that we don't think that's going to happen? No. What it is, it's very similar to having an insurance policy. We all have auto insurance, not because we think we're going to go out and crash up our car. We all have or should have life insurance, not because we think we're going to go outside and get hit by a bus, but we have those things to protect ourselves in the event something happens, it's the same way with a prenuptial agreement. 
you really need to look into it, especially if you are getting, you know, if you are over the age, uh, frankly, if you're over the age of 30, if you've got a, um, a degree, if you own a business, if you have, you know, any kind of real estate or property or assets, sit down, talk to a lawyer about how do we protect these interests in the off chance that my marriage doesn't work. And I'll tell you, I've had clients who had a prenuptial agreement. They're happily married. It's in a drawer somewhere. Nobody's even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I've had other clients who said, you know, we should have done a prenup. It would have made the divorce process a lot less messy mm-hmm. and it would have helped us a, a lot further. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, again, when you're dating, ask real questions and real questions that are that they are they're hard it's hard to be honest about whether or not you want children and it's hard to hear the answer mm-hmm. from somebody that you love but i can tell you that i it's even harder to sit in a divorce attorney's office and now be 5 years into a marriage with somebody who told you they didn't want children and now you've got you know a heartbreak because you want children and they're like, I don't want children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've got to be honest with yourself and you have to be honest from the very beginning. And if that means you got to walk away from the relationship, then that's what it means. Mm-hmm. And uh, this will be the last question before the lightning round. So being a partner is super demanding. All of the partners that I know, they work a lot. So how do you balance being ambitious at your job and wanting to be the best that you can with also being a wife. And I believe you are a mom as we were talking about spring break at one point. So how do you balance all those things without losing yourself in the process? So, you know, it is, it's a lot, but I am very lucky that I have a good partner and by partner, I mean my husband. Um, but I also have other good supports. So my secretary Um, you know, she is also very good at we on a calendar, there are days after three o'clock, we don't schedule anything. But what that means is that I know that that may be a billable day that's not as, you know, high as say other days, but there are two days a week that it's important to me to pick up my children. Mm. Other three days, I have somebody who can help me do that. Mm-hmm. But you have to be able to kind of make it work for you in the way that it that it can work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I learned a long time ago that balance is not a real thing. For me, it's more like a seesaw. Some days I'm up at work and I might not and I might be down at home. Other days I'm, you know, up at home and, you know, I might not be doing so great at work. And as long as I kind of hit, you know, kind of that back and forth, that to me in totality reflects balance. But you can't, you know, the number one thing I will say, you cannot do it by yourself. And so, you know, it's very true. It takes a village, find your village and use that village. You you cannot, you, you can't do it all by yourself. It's just not possible. And that is what has been my, my ability to do this. Hmm. So we're going to go on to the lightning round. These questions are not to be like 
thought through forever. It's just literally the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no wrong answer. Um, <laughs> what's one piece of career advice you wish you'd gotten earlier in your career? It's okay to be scared. Um, what is a career lesson that took you the longest to learn, but has had the biggest impact on your career? Listen before you speak. I, I, for me, that's the, that's, you got to listen. Actively listening is huge. Mm. Um, what's one book that you could read over and over again? I, I thought about this one and I would, you know, I, I would probably say, um, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. I know it sounds, it's a hard book. <laughs> and I read it like in the fourth grade, but I love that book so much because you know what? It reminds me of this struggle that, that we have all come from and that it will get better. And then my last question is, we all know that career decisions are made when you're not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? That she should be in this room, but... <laughs> I know that's right. But but if I'm not, if I'm not in the room, uh, you know, my hope is that they're saying, um, you know, Kim is uh, great at what she does. And, you know, uh, she is the person that you want on your team. Mm. And on that note, Kim, thank you so much for joining. This was so much fun. We didn't get through like 50% of the questions because we kept (laughs) We're so good. No, this is great. Um, you know, this stuff that we touch on, right? The black girl stuff, the the things that, the questions that I get the most, it's important. And there are things that can really stall or derail people's careers. And so I'm so yeah. glad that you touched on them. And I really appreciate you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this. And, and I appreciate that. So thank you very much for this. I told you all Kimberly would not disappoint and she really showed up and she showed out for us. Um, You all know that I like to end the episode with the top three things that I took away. So the first thing was knowing that you're excellent regardless of who's in the room. And I think that comes from putting in the work and developing yourself uh, so that people can't shake your confidence and being prepared. Um, I think the second thing I took away was how her attitude towards people telling her that she couldn't do something was if I'm going to fail anyway, I might as well just try because I don't know what's going to happen. And just having that attitude because sometimes we're going to try to talk you out of going for the position or switching jobs or moving or making some kind of uh, decision that you feel like is best for your career. And at the end of the day, it is your career. And so what's the harm in trying? If you fail, you're not any worse off. And if you, if you, you know, succeed, it gets you closer to where it is that you want to be. And there's, there's just no harm in trying. And I think the last part, the last point, which is something that I've stressed a ton on the podcast, is that you need to write down what it is that you're looking for. When Kimberly was talking about this, she meant she mentioned it in the context of a partner. But I think that that goes for your career as well. You know, if there's something that's in your head, write it down It makes it more real. And then you have something to reference to remind you of why you're putting in the kind of work that you're putting in. As always, if you want to keep the conversation going, you can subscribe to the memo, our newsletter by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B to 66866. Or you can find us on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder or on Facebook at I Choose the Ladder Podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening.